Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Belle Robertson is my guest today. She's a writer and a sober coach with a website, Tired of Thinking About Drinking. She's written a book about how to quit drinking and has worked one-on-one as a sober coach with 3,144 individual sober pen pals. And I just was chatting with Belle about this before we got on, and that number now is 3,258. Belle hasn't had a drink in over eight years, and she started her own sober journey with a sober trial, a period of time off alcohol to see how she liked it, and apparently she did. When she's not recording sober audios or coaching by email, she works as a caterer and a text designer. Originally from Canada, Belle lives in Paris and Vermont with her husband, who's also a Canadian. And fun fact, her husband doesn't speak great English, so they speak in French together at home. I wanted to have Belle on this podcast for a very long time because Belle was actually my sober coach. 
And I started working with her four and a half years ago when I woke up at three in the morning and said, I just can't do this anymore. And the day I started with Belle was my last day one. She is amazing. I signed up for her 100 Day Sober Challenge. I emailed her every day for about a year. I was lucky enough to actually have a coffee date with her and a few other people when I was six months sober when she was in Seattle, Washington. And I did lots of coaching calls with Belle. I was sitting in my car outside of my office in Seattle, and Belle was in her office in Paris. What I love about Belle's approach is that it's practical and approachable and positive. And I have to say that her first one-minute message touches me so deeply to this day. And if it's okay with you, Belle, I wanted to read it to you because I feel oh, sure. it goes okay. to the heart of your work. Okay. So the way it starts is, so I want you to imagine that there's something else for you, something better than what you're doing now. I want you to think about what could be rather than what is. So if there's a you who right now is a person who's drinking and you want to be something else and you want something else to happen in your life and you don't know how to get there and you don't know how to get this voice in your head to stop, I know what the answer is. I know that you don't believe me when I tell you I know what the answer is because the answer is stop drinking. And when you stop drinking, things change. So, Belle, welcome. I am so excited that you're here. Thank you for having me. That's quite the introduction. Oh, well, I love you. I mean, seriously, I credit (laughs) me quitting drinking to working with you, and I tell everybody about it. Well, I think it really makes a difference for us when we have one-on-one support when we have actually somebody to keep track of us and see how we're doing and email when we drift and where we can reach out and say, I don't know what I'm doing, or I feel lost, or I feel hopeless. Because really in our general lives, in our work life, in our relationship lives, we don't have a place where we can say, um, I suck at this and I don't know what to do next. Yeah. I mean, that is completely right. And it also... Um, it helped me draw a line in the sand and just say enough. And I, like you, because you coached me this way, did not say forever. I just said, I don't want to feel this way anymore. And when you said 100 day challenge, I was like, all right, let's do this. And then you did. And you went straight through with no resets also, which is not super common. But it's a sign, perhaps, that A, you'd already had a bunch of resets beforehand, and B, that once you got the right amount of tools and supports for you, which is different for everybody, that then you were able to be successful. Yeah. And before we jumped on this call, which you always used to say to me, I have no idea how you look up or keep track of this, (laughs) but you said today is day 1,694 since that day I wrote you. For you, your date of last drink is February 17th, 2016. Yeah, that's... Which is kind of a random day, February 17th. It's not Valentine's Day. It's just like a random day. Well, I mean, you are totally right. Like, this was not my first rodeo, I guess. I kind of got to the point where I was like, okay, I need to quit drinking um, three years before 
I worked with you. And I quit for four months, you know, with the help of the BFB, that online um, Mm -hmm. secret Facebook group. And uh, I had met a woman there who invited me to AA with her. And I went for about four months. It was not my jam. And then I got pregnant with my daughter. And so I was sober for a year, but, you know, probably not. Um, I would have gone back earlier just with the amount of support I had. And then after she was born, I kind of did the like slow shuffle backwards of, oh, it was just situational and I can moderate now. And, you know, the truth is I wanted to drink. And I went back to a bottle plus a night, you know, fairly quickly, you know, to every single night every day of the year for 22 months. So when I contacted you, I'd come back to the same place with the anxiety and not being able to cope and feeling like my life sucked. And my life was pretty good. I remember that you had quite a bit of anxiety and just a feeling of overwhelm with with a big job and with little kids and with your husband being involved in sport things and with all the other stuff that you had, the balls that you were juggling. Oh my God. I I have no idea with 3000 sober pen pals, how you remember that. I'm sure you have notes, but that's. I don't. And I'm trying not to disclose all that I know because I don't know how much you've shared with your audience. So, you know, I didn't didn't say which sport. (laughs) I just said he's involved with sports. I didn't say which sport. I know it's baseball, but I didn't say that. Yeah. You know, I don't know whether you're, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think at this point I'm out you know, <laughs> with the podcast. Yeah. So, and my husband is really supportive of me and proud of me. And I mean, he'd have to be right. So considering I did ask him before I was like, Hey, I'm going <laughs> to put this out there, but you know, so we don't have a lot of terrible things or much of any of us drinking together. You know, he's a normie. So it was all me. It was my story. Mm -hmm. So when you reached out to me in February of 2016, that was just around the part where point where I started to take the coaching stuff more seriously. So it's interesting that you were right there then because well, so tell me about that. Because I thought you were an old pro. I mean, you were the expert. And I was like, I'm just going to do everything she says. Well, it's interesting, because in 2016, I was well, in February 2016, I was three and a half years sober. But I quit drinking for myself, like most people do. I didn't quit drinking to help anybody. I quit drinking to help me. And I happened to write about it online in what was a blog. I mean, it's still a blog, but nobody uses blogs anymore, which is a shame because if you post on Instagram, it's really difficult to go back and read what was your day 50. And it's hard to follow. A blog has a very special way of categorizing and and archiving your experience. Anyway, in 2012, which is when I quit, there was only blogs. Yeah. And so I was writing every day, this sucks, this is hard, this is easy, this is what I did, this is what I learned, what do I do about this, how do I cope with that, this day is rotten. And I did that for as many days as it took. I didn't know how much I needed the feedback of other people who were further along than me, not someone else on day three, but somebody on day 300 who could come in and say, yeah, that part's normal, watch for that thing, have a high-protein snack at 4 o'clock, the blood sugar thing is actually more important than you realize, and I'd go, oh, okay, I got to do that too. And then at about the eight-and-a-half-month mark, my eight-and-a-half-month mark, sober, 
So it's like February, uh, January, February, I think of 2013-ish. I can't do the math exactly, but around there. You, and you made, you were around then, I don't know whether you were reading online sober blogs before you quit, but there were a handful of us who were blogging. And there was one girl who was blogging and she was just really having a hard time getting going. And like all of us, when we don't have the right tools or the right support or the right accountability, she would say, I'm on day one, I'm determined. And then the next day she'd say, I'm on day one, I'm determined. And then she'd say, this has got to change. I'm determined. And then I emailed her privately. And I said, you know, it might be that trying to quit forever is hard. And maybe you'd do better with something like a trial. Like, why don't you just quit for 100 days and then see how you feel? And then she posted on her blog and she said, I'm doing Bell's 100 Day Sober Challenge. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you're not. No, 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 you're not. Because there isn't one. I'm, I'm only eight and a half months. Like, I no, I have no, no. But I, what I had said to her was, why don't you email me every day and just say sober? thinking that that was a kind thing to offer, but not actually thinking it made any difference. It just seemed like an easy thing to offer. So she posted it on her blog. And then what happened was not just the people who were reading and writing that we knew about on the internets, but strangers who were not blogging and not commenting, just reading, which of course I didn't even know they existed, what we now would call a lurker strangers started to email me and say, can I do your challenge? And I'm like, oh shit. Like now I got to write it down. I got to get a spreadsheet. I got to like have a number. So, you know, <laughs> Lily's number one and Lee Ann's number two and Mr. Girl's number four, so on. And so I started to collect people's names and their start dates. This was all free and it was all by word of mouth. Yeah. That's incredible. Like you didn't have a website. You had your blog. That's but- it. That's all yeah. I still have. Yeah. I mean, I now have a blog with a home with a front page, but I yeah. still don't have what would be a normal coaching website. And people started to just come to me. And then I made a joke with my husband and I said, wouldn't it be hilarious if there were a hundred people doing the hundred days over challenge? Like, wouldn't that just be so funny? And then of course you get to a hundred and what happens is not everybody's sober. Yeah. And some people haven't really committed. I mean, it's a free thing with an anonymous person online that they didn't really know or they didn't know well, or they suspect they couldn't figure out what my motive was. <laughs> and so people would use the support, but then they'd get nervous that they, this, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but they would get nervous that they weren't paying because who just helps people for no reason. And yeah. I'm like, well, but I'm not even really helping. Like, this is what I was saying. It's not really helping. I just let you email me. And then I email you back. That's not the same as AA and steps and counseling. And I didn't even know there was a name for what I was doing now, which I now know is called micro coaching, which is where you, and maybe that's my own invented word, but I've seen it in a couple, I've seen it online. So it's not a totally invented word, but micro coaching is where you meet somebody where they are. Mm. You answer the question that they're asking, and then you do it again tomorrow. You don't lay out a whole bunch of things that you need to worry about because you're not there yet. And you don't start to criticize how they're handling one thing while they're dealing with something else. And you do a bit, you do it little tiny adjustments. So imagine you're going to therapy, you'd go once a week and you'd say, here's my problem with drinking. And your therapist would say, do this and this. And then you'd go off and you'd have seven days in a row where you have to do it alone. And then you go back to the therapist and you say, that didn't work very well. Yeah. With micro coaching, you can email and I'll 
answer, you email me and say, I'm going to a thing. What should I say when they ask me? And then yeah. I say what you should say. And then you email me when you get home. And then you email the next morning. And then you email the next day and you say, I'm having a good day. And then you email and say, I'm having a bad day. And we tweak and work with it in real time Mm -hmm. in a way that, I mean, a counselor obviously is a fantastic human, but in a way that a counselor cannot, a counselor can do more in-depth things over a longer period of time. We're doing these small adjustments daily that can get you from here to tomorrow, which is all you can do in sober world anyway, is be sober today and get to tomorrow. That's the goal anyway. Yeah. So I'm doing that for, I'm going to say years, because by the time that you joined, it was 2016. So three years, I worked with 2,100 people for free. That's incredible. That is incredible. And I know you've said that it helped you stay sober, but how do you even fit that in with your other jobs and your other work and your spouse and life? Well, it's to be fair, 2,100 people is not 2,100 at a time. Yeah. And when it was free, people would sign up and then disappear. Or they would get to 100 days and then drink. Or they would commit and then not, and then relapse. And then people would come and go. So it, there was never, there was never more than 50 or 75 people at a time, even now. There isn't. Because, I mean, that would just be dumb. And there's a certain, and I'm, all, I'm also a fast typist, which happens to turn out to be a skill from high school that has served me well now into my 50s. I am too, and I swear it's the best skill I ever learned in it my is. life in seventh grade. And I can type pretty much as fast as I can think, and I can type in all lowercase and just type an answer and press send. And I don't proofread it, and it's very like live like that. What I didn't realize, and the reason I didn't charge, I know, and I know this sounds dumb. It'll sound dumb in retrospect, but I didn't charge because I didn't think it had any worth. I didn't think it had any value or I couldn't measure the value because I was the one giving it, not the one receiving it. Mm-hmm. So when people said to me, I feel guilty emailing you because I'm not paying, I'm like, that's just dumb. I'm offering, please email four times a day. And then they'd say, you know, if we could meet for coffee, I could buy you a coffee. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll put up a button on my website that says buy me coffee. And then people started to put money in that account. Hmm. And then I'm like, holy shit. Like, what is this? Because there were no other sober coaches at that time. There was no She Recovers. There was no BFB Facebook group. Um, I got a fair amount of pushback for having a donation button on my website because in the other blogs, there were none. And the very traditional AA approach is you give it away. Yeah. But I had 2,100 people for free. Yeah. You can't hold down a job if you're doing that constantly. I mean, and you know, your time is worthwhile and you have a ton of experience. I mean, I never thought that I shouldn't be paying you. Of course I should be paying you. Well, I didn't recognize the value and I had a job, so I didn't need the money to come from the sober stuff. But the pen pals were unable to commit properly if they weren't Mm -hmm. paying. But also, they were unable to take it seriously in a way that you do when you put some money on the table. Because when you said, I'm going to pay some random amount of money for support to be sober, it means that I'm actually going to invest in myself. Because it's too easy to sign up for something that's free and do a day and a half and then walk away. Yeah. 
I've also found out all of this I've learned over time by my pen pals telling me. I don't I don't know any of this in advance and any expertise that I have is because I've talked to 3000 people. It's because I've talked one on one. It's like I don't have an N of one. I'm, I'm not my I'm not the only person I've coached. It's not my only my experience. Yeah. I worked with 2000 people before I charged anybody anything. Because that's because you know you learn from Linda that that worked with her, and then you go to Casey and you say, "Did you want to hear what Linda was trying?" And then Casey says something, and then I go back to Linda and I say, "You know, have you thought of this?" And then I look like a genius to her yeah. when really all I did was take what you said and go back to her. But I've done that you know three thousand times. Yeah. So what it means then is that I have a view, an overview of people who have critical mental health issues who have no mental health issues, who have been sober for a little while, who've been sober for a long while. I have people with high bottom and low bottom in the drinking world, large consequences for drinking, no consequences for drinking. I have people who consider themselves to be binge drinkers. I have people who consider, who are 23, six. I think my youngest is 23 and my oldest is 73. Wow. Um, And men and women. With no, like I don't discriminate against any of it. And I don't require you to be sober when you start. Like, you know, I don't say you must already be on day 30 before I'll work with you, which would be a way of pre-screening and then having better results. Right? Yeah. But of the yeah. last hundred people who signed up with me, 76 of them are sober. Wow. That's amazing. I now, that's a that. large number. Now, that's, yeah. that's because that's because they pay, to be fair. That's because they've, they've already looked around and decided that they wanted to work with me because nobody's impulse buying. Also, I've removed the ability to just purchase it without being on a waiting list. I removed the impulse buying because I want people to know me first before they actually commit um, because I was having a lot of people on a, on a bad 3 a.m. You can, I mean, you can relate to this 3 a.m. going online, pulling out their credit card, buying something. They don't even know who I am. Then they're disappointed that it doesn't magically just work. Because yeah. they spend money, right? Do you find it frustrating with people starting over with day ones? Oh, no. Well, no. It's a sign that they don't, that we don't have enough tools and supports. I mean, if you start off to run a marathon and you're not wearing the right equipment and you didn't eat right and you didn't go to the bathroom first, you're not going to be successful. Yeah. Right? And nobody talks about the bathroom stuff on a marathon, but it's real. And um, nobody talks about, how to deal with your spouse when you're quitting drinking, but it's real. So people will say that they quit drinking because they, that they want to quit drinking for them for, you know, because their husband is giving them a hard time. And then they soon realize that they just feel better when they are sober and they feel proud of themselves and they can commit to things and they're present for themselves and they're present for their kids. But so if you relapse, then it means that the addictive voice in your head is so loud that you have committed want it, shown up, read, paid. And the addictive voice is still loud. Now, if you you couldn't have nothing but empathy for that. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody picks that. I mean, nobody chooses that to be their situation. Now, if somebody signs up with me though, and they repeatedly relapse and don't want to add in new tools and supports, and they want to try harder, or they're resistant to looking at what are they doing and what could you change? Because I do. I mean, I have a pen pal right now who said to me, I want to do this only with you. I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want to go to any meetings. I don't want to tell my doctor. I don't want to tell my husband. And I'm like, cool. Just don't relapse. 
Because if you relapse, we're going to talk about all those things, adding in all those things. Mm -hmm. And then if there's any frustration, it's that the addictive voice can actually prevent people from taking action to get the addiction to stop. And that the addiction itself keeps us stuck in a place where we keep trying the same thing over and over again, getting the same result. And then I'm out here going, try different. Yeah. Try something different. And your head's like, no, no, I don't, but I don't want that. So what I loved about working with you is you were so positive. You were such a cheerleader for the work I was doing. The real-time feedback was invaluable. I mean, just, you know, I do remember because, you know, I, the challenges were real just in terms of you're breaking 20 years of habits, right? So, and one thing I love, and of course I did it before I interviewed you today was I saved, so A, I saved every email I ever sent you and your responses. So that's insane because I emailed (laughs) you for a year and I was doing it like five days a week. And so I've got them all in a folder. I actually pulled up my first email I ever sent you after listening to the audio of your lesson one. Mm-hmm. And I have all our phone calls. So you recorded our 30 minute phone calls yeah. and I listened to them again, which is crazy. So my first call with you was on day 16. I have one on day 33 at four months at day 100 at day five months when I was having a panic and anxiety attack that was very, very real. And, you know, A, I'm incredibly grateful to you, but I remember on my first call on day 16 saying, I'm going to Venice with my mother and my sister at four months. And I'm incredibly worried about that. And I said, you said, uh, we could talk about that four months from five days before you go. Yeah. You know, you were like, A, you planted the seed. Like you are going to love sober travel. It is going to be amazing. You are going to see everything with new eyes. It's going to be the best thing you ever did. And I wish I could go back and redo every trip I've done without drinking. So that, I mean, I held on to that. I really did. And you said, you're on day 16. Let's talk, you know, when you're on, because I was going to be a little over a hundred days when I went and you were just like, we can talk about that then. And it was great advice, right? Because my next challenge was my husband got a promotion and I was going out to dinner with another couple for the first time. And, Mm. you know, it was much more basic. Like, what do I say to them? How do I not die when they order a glass of red wine? What do I order? What's my sober treat afterwards? Like, just so different. Do you know, I just looked up our um, uh, email history. And it doesn't include all of my replies, but it includes most of my replies and all of your emails. It's 800 messages. Oh, my God. Yeah, I got my money's worth. (laughs) From signing up with you. You know, I bet a lot of people. Okay, you were with me for two years, though. To be fair, you were pen pals for two full years. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, I literally did everything that you suggested, everything. Like you sent a lesson one email, email me back. And I was like, okay, here I go. And you asked me on one of my first calls, you were like, you know, what is going on? And I was just like, well, I am a joiner. 
I like to get my gold stars. I follow instructions. Yeah. Like I want to be an A plus student. So right. I mean, for better or worse, I do bet that people's per. I like my pats on the head. Like you know, yeah, um, yeah. So for better or worse, like I think that really helped me because you know I never want to disappoint anyone. And although I disappointed myself constantly. Like I'm an obliger, you know, with Gretchen Rubin's four types, I am more likely to sacrifice my word to myself or my priorities for someone else. But God, that helped me in not drinking. Yeah. in, In actually following through. And well, I mean, the thing about taking guidance though, I mean, to be fair, we have to decide who we ask for guidance. Yes. Because lots of people want their sober support to come from their drinking spouse. Or they want their sober support to come from their Facebook family and not from another sober person who's further along than them, not someone else on day three. This is my primary concern with a lot of the groups online is the repeated relapsing, which is normal, but repeatedly relapsing without changing your strategy isn't helpful. And saying you got this isn't true. You don't got it. You don't get it. In fact, I don't got it. I'm on day 3000 and something. You don't get it. I don't got it. I still have to do some maintenance. It's like saying I got a full tank of gas. Oh, cool. You got it. Uh, no, I still have to put gas in the car. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the further, I mean, the, the further along sober you are, the less maintenance you have to do or the easier the maintenance is, or it's just integrated into your life in a way that doesn't feel like anything. But it's sort of like complaining that I'm going to mix metaphors again. I just said gas in a car. Now I'm going to say, it's just like saying I have to wash my hair and then I have to wash it again. I just want to wash my hair once and be done. I just want to quit drinking and not have to think about it anymore. It's like, really? I just want my paycheck to arrive in my bank account and never think about money again. It doesn't actually work like that. And it shouldn't because the most important things in our lives do take maintenance like marriage like relationship with children, like our marathon time, like our weight, like our drinking, like our car maintenance, like our car maintenance. You don't just buy a car and then never put gas in it. It's like, well, I saved up a lot of money and I paid for this car and it's really, it's like, yeah, and now you got to learn how to drive it. And then you got to learn how to read all of its noises and know what this light, light means and what this gauge means. Then you have to do things preventatively so that it never breaks down on you. Because the difference between a car breaking down on the side of the road on the way to school and a sober car breaking down is that a sober car doesn't necessarily get restarted. Yeah. Well, and when you talk about not relying on other people at the same point as you are, I mean, I agree with you 100% because when you talk about that addictive voice and you know you call it wolfy and so i call it wolfy cuz that's what we talked about in 800 emails like other people can trigger that wolfy voice in yourself and to some extent like undermine your confidence your resolution you know plant a seed that you i mean you get jealous sometimes if someone relapses you're like well if she can drink why can't i right even though right. she's saying i am fucking miserable and it was a terrible yeah. decision and i feel like yeah. shit it's permission you are so fragile 
in the beginning, like you need someone. I mean, I've honestly internalized everything you said to me, but I'm like, sober momentum is precious. Like there is no guarantee that you're going to get another streak. You know, I had a healthy fear of relapse. Um, you talked about sober treats and self-care and lowering the bar and doing less. And I think I listened. I love your one minute messages. I started out on your first. I think you were putting them out as I was going through because like right. 54 came out and all the other ones. And I listened to them when I was driving to the gym to work out at 530 in the morning when I was driving home from work before I picked up my daughter at daycare, like not when they were in the car, but every other time. And I was like reprogramming my brain with a message that not drinking suits me and that not drinking is a good idea and that nobody needs to drink. I mean, all of those things, I think that we're conditioned for 20 plus years, our whole lives to think that drinking is good and fun and a privilege and you will be ostracized if you don't and people will judge you and it's required and your words and your audios really helped me break that break that cycle. Well, I think some of what we need to is the repetition. I mean, we need to hear the same message in different words in different ways and it's like this this idea of micro coaching. We need to not just hear that audio on day six, but we need to hear it again on day 16 because we're in a different place. Yeah. And then on day 40, when you listen to it again, you hear something different because you're dealing with things because you, you've evolved. The audio is the same, mm -hmm. but you've evolved. So now you, and also it's, again, it's like talking about your weight or husbands or moving. If you're not dealing with your weight or a husband or moving, you sort of go, yeah, 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 whatever until you're moving. And then suddenly the audio about moving seems really important. Yeah. Yeah. And it also is, you know, the idea of hope and the idea of it gets better. Um, I know, like, so I said, I pulled up your emails. I wrote you on day 30 and it was the day that I listened to your one minute message. Tell me, which yeah. is actually my absolute favorite message of all right. time. Tell me I'll think it was worth it. Yeah. Tell me yeah. it gets yeah. better. Tell me it's worth it. Tell me it will all be okay. Tell me it'll get easier when I know what to say. And then you were like, it is, it does. It will be. Oh my God. I was in tears. I wrote that one in Scotland. I mean, I remember, I remember that particular audio because one of my sober pen pals asked me to come to her wedding as her sober support as what? a guest. And so I flew from Paris to Scotland to attend a wedding of someone I had never met. Okay. That's above and beyond. <laughs> well, I'd never been to Scotland and I thought it was going to be, it was close. I mean, it was Paris. And you're but like a wedding. Was, that's always fun. <laughs> Yeah. What do you know? Nobody. And you're going to be sober. Yeah. Sounds, sounds fantastic. And it was always in English. So then my husband didn't come with me. So I was alone. I remember recording that in the hotel room in Scotland. I don't mm -hmm. know why. I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember every single audio, but that one in, in particular I do. But I also remember that you liked it. And did you then also record a version of it with you saying it? Well, you asked people to record their own audios. And right. send them in for one minute messages at one point. And I recorded one about not drinking being sort of a long game of compounding benefits. Right. And, you know, right. imagining my son was eight at the time and imagining what his life would be like 
when he was 18, like a decade out, if I kept wow. drinking a bottle wow. plus of wine a night versus what his childhood and teenager and life would be like if I stopped. And mm. it was just so stark. I wondered if by the time he was 18, he would want to bring his friends home. And, you know, he's my biggest fan. It's crazy. Like he and my husband for my thousand days went to a craft store and got me, I have it in my office, a glass jar and literally counted out 1000 like glass marbles and put it in there. And I had it on the kitchen table when I came down in the morning. And it was incredible because my husband didn't necessarily think I needed to quit drinking. He you know, wanted me to have an off switch. He wanted me to not open a second bottle of wine on a Tuesday and pass out on the couch. But, you know, we drank together and he was like, uh, can't you just cut back? Are you overreacting? So the fact that they are just proud of me makes me so happy. And how old's your son now? He is 12 and a half. Right. So to have a 12 and a half, 12 and a half year old son who speaks to you at all, <laughs> You're doing something right because really right around 13, they stopped talking. Yeah. Yeah. And stop he's, holding your hand. He's always been a good boy. <laughs> yeah. Well. But um, yeah. And that was part of it. I was like, I am miserable in my life and I have the sweetest son and a really good husband and a good marriage and all the things. And yet I'm waking up every day saying I hate my life, which is insane. And it was the alcohol. Mm. I think people don't realize it's the alcohol. I mean, that's that's the thing that a sober person knows that a drinker doesn't. Although yeah. that a drinker hopes is true. Yeah. Is that if you remove the booze, things change. If you remove the booze, things get better. It doesn't all get magically fixed, but the possibility of fixing things is there in a way that is not while you're still drinking. So it makes things possible, which frankly is better than hopeless. Although it's not magical all the time, but it's still light years better. And when people say to me, you know, I'm on day 16, I don't feel better. It's like, do you feel better than day one? Okay, well, then you're trending in the right direction. Keep going. Ask me again on day 30. And then if they say on day 30, I still don't feel great. It's like, okay, do you feel better than day 16? Yeah. Is it trending in the right direction? Yeah. Well, because we drink for 20 years and 16 days of not drinking, like you're still, I mean, my God, you're still pulling yourself out of all the things that both physically and emotionally and relationships and, you know, everything stresses you out in early sobriety. Of course it does. Well, and you feel like you're not capable. Yeah. When in fact you've just done 16 days or you're just done 30 days, it's like you must have learned something to get here. Yeah. You will continue to learn things that will get you there. And that's the thing about relapse, right? If you relapse, you relapse right at the point where you needed to learn something that was going to help you to keep going and you didn't learn it. So you didn't keep going. And there was something there you were supposed to learn that now you have to go back to one and start again and fucking learn it again the next time it comes up and try not to relapse again. Yeah. So that you can actually learn it so that you can go ahead then to the next to the next. Well, and it, it's so disheartening, right? You get to day 49 and you drink and then you're on day four, which is incredible, right? Because a lot of people go back to drinking and stay in that cycle for a long time trying to get, you know, a start again. And their mind's just saying, oh, drink tonight. You can start tomorrow. You can start Monday. 
but you're like, fuck, I'm on day eight. I was day on 49. This sucks. Yeah. Well, and then there's lots of creative math that goes on. And then there is, I don't want to count that. Let's just call it 46 minus one. And the problem with that is that if the days don't count, then the days don't count. If you don't count days, then the days don't count. Meaning you can drink once and then two weeks later, you'll drink again. And then and three weeks later, you'll drink again. Yeah. And you'll be like, oh, I'm on day 100. And it's like, well, you're, you're actually on yeah. seven days, you right. know, and that's people do get mad at you when you say that. And it's like, not those that those days don't count, not that you didn't learn something, not that you're, you didn't gain information, but on day seven, Wolfie is fucking loud. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you have to go through that again. And if you're stopping and starting, you're not having the benefit of momentum and of continuous sobriety, which gives you a different set of tools. And so you actually, I mean, it's harder. It's frankly harder to stop and start than it is to be continuously sober, which means that on a day that seems really hard, you have to go to bed. You have to yeah. go to bed at two o'clock. You have to cancel your afternoon stuff. You have to not go to the pub for dinner. What are you doing in the pub yeah. on day 16? Anyway, you <laughs> order a frozen meal. You stop making five lunches a week. You know, you stop the, all of that over-functioning because if you can't protect your sobriety, and you've already identified that you want it. That's the thing. We're not coming into anybody's bedroom and saying, you must be sober. Everybody who you are working with or that I am have on my like free subscriber list for the daily emails has chosen to be there. Every single person is there because they want to be there because they want the support, because they want the information, because they know something is up with their drinking and they're trying to figure out what to do. It's not like we're going into anybody's house and trying to convince them. So then when yeah. you get there and your addictive voice is loud, you have to be willing to open your head to let a sober person's advice in, but a sober person's advice is going to sound exactly wrong to a drinking head. If you're a drinker and somebody says no pub for dinner, you're like, I always go to the pub. That's ridiculous. What does she know? I always go to the pub. I'm like, you want to be sober? Yeah. <laughs> Here's yeah, and it's not that says. you can never do that stuff right. again. It's just right. like you can't do it yet. You're not strong enough yet. And you're kind of torturing yourself and making it harder on yourself. Like, why would you do that? Well, there's a certain amount of I need to test this. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, I don't believe in testing it ever, but you certainly don't test it on day seven. And some, I mean, this was in my inbox this week where someone relapsed and she said, you know, I had to go to that thing. It's like, you, you know what? You didn't. You're on day four for the 40th time and you're suffering from that and you're unhappy and you're crying on the phone to me that this is really hard. You don't have to go to that birthday party. You just don't. You don't. Yeah. And your kids don't have to go to swimming unless they're in the Olympics, in which case your their coach or their the, the co, co car share drive Uber will take them. Right. Um, yeah. Most of the time, most of these things are not requirements, but our head says, I have to be able to function exactly the same as I was before and quit drinking. I have to be able to do exactly the same things as I was doing before and not allow myself any latitude for the fact that removing this compulsive addictive substance is going to suck. Yeah. And so I want to pretend like it's not actually happening and just keep going on with life and I don't want to listen to audios because then it reminds me about drinking and I'm like, yeah, that's just not going to work. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I really internalize, like, if you feel like you want to drink to tolerate something, it's the thing you're trying to tolerate that needs to change, not that you need to drink to do it. Or if something doesn't sound like any fun without drinking, maybe it's just not fun, right? (laughs) Like, right. Or maybe you're shy and quiet. And maybe you think that you need to like self medicate and add a chemical to change your basic personality as if there's something the matter with being quiet, as if there's something the matter with going to a party and first talking to one person and then talking to two people and not dancing around with a lampshade on your head. <laughs> if you think that's fun, I mean, that, that's a distorted version of fun anyway. Yeah. But I think also people think that, that being an introvert is a character flaw that needs to be medicated as opposed to for those of us who are extroverts we're so busy sucking the oxygen out of the room that it can't be full. It can't, can't just be a room full of extroverts. That would be a terribly boring party. It would be a whole bunch of blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think when I um, started working with you, I remember going to my son's baseball practice. He was still pretty young. So I had to drive him there and stay and drive him home. And I was listening to your audios because that's what I did, you know, every moment that I had a free free moment. And it wasn't because I had to, it was because I wanted to. And I just remember this feeling coming over me and thinking to myself that hiring a coach was the kindest thing that I had done for myself in mm. the longest time. Really? And kind because why? Because it then allows you to be kind to yourself? It was having someone be nurturing and supportive and giving me permission to take care of myself instead of taking care of everyone else and telling me that, you know, validating my feelings. And, you know, I was so mean to myself in the voice in my head, um, whether it's your inner critic or society or what your parents told you that you've internalized. But you know, I was like, why can't I cope with this? I should be doing more. I shouldn't rest. I should do all the things. And you were like, why would you cope with that? That sucks. Why don't you take a rest? You don't have to do all of that, you know? And it it was just so funny. I started, you know, honestly, I just felt better. I felt happier. I felt understood. And it's crazy that this audio voice, and I did feel like I knew you because you replied back and we did have calls, but this voice telling me that made me feel better. And it reminded me of right after I'd had my baby. And, you know, I, it's just kind of a really, really, really tough time. You go from being completely spoiled and nurtured to being sort of a a housemaid where you are completely uh, serving a kind of demanding little, um, you know, it's always, what have you done for me lately? And you don't get a lot of support and it's just miserable. And, you know, I did this, this yoga video, right? Postpartum. And it started with what you're doing is hard. This isn't, you know, this is difficult. Your body has been through so much. You, you know, you are hurting. And I just started crying at this like postnatal yoga. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is hard. And yes. no one was saying that to me. It was very similar. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of overperforming, right? There's a lot of polished looking faces and 
I popped out my baby and went, you know, I had a cheeseburger and went back to work in the afternoon. And then there's also a lot of that in the sober world too. There's a lot of I, or, or the pandemic world, you yeah. know, I was locked down for four months. So then I learned Spanish and carved my headboard out of glass. Um, and then there's, you know, I uh, had to homeschool my kids and run a full-time job and maintain my mental health and make sure I was stayed sober and cook dinner. Like, yeah, some of the, some of those things are, too, some of those things are too many things. And since you can't hand your children back, although you've tried and you've asked for a refund on those kids and nobody's given it to you, what else can you give up? And, you know, some of the things we give up have to do with overfunctioning, but also the booze, when you give up the booze, you get, I don't know, even know how to describe it. You get self-esteem, you get possibility, like I was mentioning before, but that actually means something like then you can count on yourself and then you wake up, don't feel like a bag of shit. And then you sleep through the night and then you feel proud of yourself. Like really, if we were going to sell a pill and it was called, I feel proud of myself, you'd buy it. And if that pill said, I feel proud of myself, cannot be taken with alcohol, but you'll feel proud of yourself. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll go for it. Yeah. But you come up to somebody and you say, I need you to quit drinking, or you need to quit drinking, or you said you want to quit drinking, and then you'll feel proud of yourself. They're like, yeah, I'm not convinced. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I feel like not all approaches are that way. I mean, the way I think about it now, and I learned this from you, is be proud of yourself. Be proud of yourself on day two. Be proud of yourself on day five. Realize you are doing one of the hardest things you will ever do. Um, you know, I mean, I went to AA and you spent all your time talking about your bottom and the worst thing you've ever done and how we, um, are uniquely damaged with character defects. And I, I didn't, you know, a, I didn't feel like I was a very bad person. I really didn't. I felt like I had been hustling my whole life and trying to be kind and trying to be good and um, feeling anxiety that I wasn't measuring up or doing enough or disappointing people. Um, I didn't feel like I was uniquely damaged or had a character defect. I just felt like I got addicted to this really addictive substance. And I liked that you were such a cheerleader and so positive and, um, you know, just being like, you are a badass, like this is hard and you're doing something that so many people who worry about their drinking aren't doing. And I didn't get that from AA. I felt like I was feeling bad. You know, I don't even call myself an alcoholic. I feel like I personally don't feel it's helpful. And I know you don't either. I like that. That was one of the reasons I liked working with you. You were like, if you're a boozer and I was like, yep, I'm a boozer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but you know, not everybody, um, not everybody approaches it though, the way that I do with the, you know, the, the cheering and the no character defect and AA has helped lots of people, millions of people. Oh yeah. And, but there's, but I don't think that tough love is terribly helpful and I don't, and I think we already know it's hard in our head, even if we're not articulating it, we know, and we're sort of carrying a certain amount of shame and embarrassment to even ask for help. Um, and I think you have to meet people where they are, but you also have to lower the barrier to entry. Like if I make you say I'm an alcoholic to attend the meeting, that is a high barrier of entry. When I first quit drinking, my husband said, the problem with AA is the name. You shouldn't have the word alcoholic in it. Then people would go. 
And it's like, that's it. People don't want to say the word. So then it's like on my side of the screen, it's like, okay, fine. Who cares what the word is? Don't say the word. Call it any other word. Doesn't matter. We still know we want to quit drinking. Doesn't matter. But that's not um, so commonly thought in the sober world. You, you and I both know this. It's also not so common in the sober It's more common in the sober world also for people to think that there's a character flaw or defect that has made them addicted as opposed to what you just said, which is the thing that you know that I believe, which is that the product itself is addictive. We have a sensitive head. We have poor self-soothing skills and the product is addictive. You put those three things together. Nowhere in there is um, I, I'm bad or even I did something wrong. Yeah. We have a sensitive head. We have poor self-soothing skills that can be learned. And the product is addictive, which if we remove, where our head stops asking for. That's not the same approach that most everybody has about addiction. There's lots of talk about addiction to do with connection. That what we're actually missing is connection. Nothing to do with sensitive head. Nothing to do with the fact that the product is addictive. Just that rats do this and then rats don't do this, which of course implies that the the most well-connected rat wouldn't be addicted to heroin. I find that hard to believe. And I know <laughs> some well-connected uh, sober people who are addicted to alcohol. So uh, like, I don't, I don't buy it. <laughs> I don't buy it because it's my lived experience of the people that I've worked with, not because I've done some rat research because I've actually worked with some people. But the other thing that I don't really uh, agree with in the sober world right now is the idea that, uh, we drink because of trauma. Because really, trauma is everywhere. And I'm not shitting on Gabor Mate in particular because he's a good Canadian. And I'm also a good Canadian, so really. But to say that it is to do with trauma is to pathologize an experience that just about everybody on the planet has some kind of trauma. There's lots of divorce. There's lots of neglect. There's lots of poverty. There's lots of misinformation. There's lots of parents with mental health issues who did their best, but it wasn't good enough. There's lots of narcissistic parents who had kids for the wrong reasons. There's lots of kids being left home alone while their parents work three jobs. There's lots of reasons why we don't develop good self-soothing skills. But to say that it is all because of trauma, I think is not fair. Because for, for, for anybody who's not had, not been abused, not had a particular trauma, then they think they should be able to snap out of this. Because, you know, nothing bad happened to me. So why does my head ask for alcohol? And then I go back to poor self-soothing skills, a head that asks for it, the product is addictive. I don't yeah. think that, and, and, and even if it was because of trauma, let's say it was, it doesn't change what you have to do now, which is remove the booze, have somebody talk to you who's further along than you, and learn self-soothing skills in real time. I think the self-soothing tools was like the biggest thing that has helped me and not just in the beginning of sobriety, but I feel like it's a life skill I'm taking forward for the rest of my life. And that's also yeah. because, you know, we are used to drinking when we're sad, mad, hungry, angry, tired, frustrated, misunderstood, and happy, right? We feel mm. like we deserve it to celebrate. We want to feel even better. We want the time to be epic. Um, you know, and so actually being like, wow, am I anxious or sad or angry? Because those, those are, you need different self-soothing skills for every one of them right. and to process it. 
or, you know, it, or some people drink. And I think I did because we're such busy multitaskers and we go, go, go. And we want to downshift that quickly too. Like now I'm home. Now the kids are to bed. Now I need to relax because I've got two hours to do it. And, you know, patience and realizing that not everything goes so quickly and realizing that when you're angry, you sometimes need to scream and go for a run or, you know, whatever. And when you're sad, you need to cry and have someone commiserate with you and tell you that is unfair and it sucks. Or you need to go to bed and turn off your head from processing all of the emotions and all of the facts and all of the news and all of the data. I mean, sometimes the way that we get, I mean, mean, to to hope that there's an instant off switch um, is a sort of fantasy thinking because there wasn't an instant on switch. You didn't get all these demands in your life uh, instantaneously. You added them one by one. You added, to be fair, you have jobs. We didn't just pick any job, though. We picked important jobs that demanded a lot from us. Then we took promotions. Then we took more responsibilities. Then we had children, which were which were gifts and blessings and added to the responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Then we add personal development. I need to do a keto diet and run a marathon. Then we add seven kinds of volunteer work. Then we put our kids in six kinds of extracurricular. And then we want an an instant off for that. It's like, really? And you're like, I have too much on my shoulders. It's overwhelming. I can't do this. And you're like, of course you can't. Of course. Of course you can't. Right. But if you say to one person, you know what? Having three children each in three separate extracurricular activities is too much. It's too much for them. It's too much for you. It's not sustainable. The answer is some deep pain, like, but my mother didn't do it for me, so I want to do it for them. Yeah. It's like, yeah, and you're going to be a miserable human who drinks two bottles of wine a night. That's not what your kids want either. Yeah. Right? They don't. I mean, they don't want you to be angry driving them to three events. They don't want you frustrated, tired, distracted either. They don't want you hungover. They don't want you not able to wake up at 3 a.m. when they need you. Uh, they want to be able to bring their friends home, like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, three sporting events per kid, and you've got one family car, and you know, m- husband travels for work. Really? Yeah. So th- that's th- and so then people say, "I need an instant off," and my instant off is heroin. Uh, you'd say that's not a coping strategy. But if they say it's two bottles of wine, it's like that's not a coping strategy. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, you're basically coming home and knocking yourself unconscious because right. you're right. trying to tolerate your life and you're just right. making harder on yourself. But if you say to somebody, you know what, you need to scale back on some of that or your kids need to do more or you need to not have a, three extra people living in your house or, you know, we've taken on boarders and then roommates and then they brought their dogs, the kind of chaos. When you say to somebody, it's time to start to dismantle that. They actually want to hold on to that and drink. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons I finally left my corporate job. I mean, when I was writing you and this was not new, I had um, so much anxiety from my job. And I would say stress it, but it got a lot better after I quit drinking. But I had a really demanding boss. I mean, 
kind of a nightmare. And I was like, what's wrong with me that I can't do this? And I remember she even said that to me, like I, you know, like four people on my team had turned over and I was doing two jobs and she had been out of town for two weeks. And there was all this pressure to make the sales numbers. And I tried to talk to her afterwards, after a meeting with the big team, because I was the boss of a bunch of people and be like, I, you know, we need more help. This is unsustainable. We're not hitting our numbers. I need you to step in and take some of this. And she literally looked at me and said, Casey, I don't know why this is so hard for you. And I just was like, crush. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I am positive I wrote you, um, but I did not go home and drink. Um, it is stressful, but one of the things I love that you say in your interview, because not all, everyone has kids and, and a bunch of my clients don't have kids. And I talk about children as triggers a lot because that was my experience. And also you love them and it's why you stop drinking often, but you have to do it for yourself. But you say it's hard for everyone. Some people say I live alone and so it's hard to stop drinking. Other people say I have three kids, so it's hard for me to stop drinking. Some people say I work as a lawyer and everybody drinks, so it's hard. And other people say I hate my job, it's mind numbing, and so I drink, right? I mean it's it's, well, because, it's hard for everyone. Well, no, and because our addictive voice puts the reason for our drinking outside of us. We don't drink because we have a head that asks for it. We drink because of them, this, them. We drink because of people. We drink because of situations. I drink because of my boss, my kid, my husband, because I'm alone. It's like you drink because you have a head that asks for it, whether you have kids or not. Because I can assure you, when your husband leaves you, you will still drink. And I know that because I see it in my inbox. And people say, oh, I will, you know, I, I don't have any low bottom. And I will assure you that when you are diagnosed with breast cancer, you will still drink. And that will be so disappointing and devastating to you that then you'll drink because you're disappointed and devastated that having cancer wasn't enough to quit because it isn't enough because those things aren't like those things don't work like deterrence like they should. Like it logically, when my husband says I'm over drinking, then I would quit the next day and never think about it again because I prioritize my marriage over my alcohol. Like that's the logical answer. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. Because addiction is illogical. But to take a logical human, which is you and me, to have then a tape running in our head that is illogical is very hard to deal with. Because we believe that message in our head that says, I drink because of my husband. I drink because of my kids. I drink because of my boss. Yeah. Instead of saying, I've got too many things on my plate. My self-care is poor. My self-soothing is poor. And I have a head that asks for it, which means I'm always going to have to err on the side of caution. Well, and then when I see people who quit drinking, they go through really, really hard things and don't drink, you know, people who get or who are diagnosed with MS, people who go through cancer, people who have parents die. I had my very best friend go through brain cancer and have three brain surgeries and then die a pretty slow, brutal death. And I was sober through it all. And I... I was there for her and peaceful and proud of it and really sad and devastated and thought it was unfair, but I didn't drink and make it all about me and blame her for or her diagnosis for me drinking. And 
that was incredible. So, you know, if you drink because really shitty thing happened, you can, you know, when you get away from the alcohol, have really shitty things happen and not make them worse. Right. And if you are in a place right now where you were drinking and you say it's because shitty things happen, you'd have to be willing to open your head to the idea that maybe your head drinks when you're happy, sad, mad, glad. And that if it wasn't a shitty thing, which is totally shitty and legitimately shitty and nobody's discounting that, but if something good happened, you'd also think of drinking. And if you were bored, you'd think of drinking and to celebrate and a funeral and a wedding, you'd think of drinking so that probably, probably it's not this shitty thing. Probably you have a head that thinks that drinking's a good idea. Or the seasonal thing, right? People are like, well, the summer, I, I always drink in the summer falls hard. I love the fall. Holidays are hard. And I'm like, yeah, I drank 365 nights a year. So like I have associations with drinking with Tuesdays and every holiday and every event and being home like, yes. And it's, you know, you said this, it is never a good time to stop drinking. If you're waiting for the perfect time, it will never come. Well, there's a perfect time. The perfect time to quit drinking is now because then you start to feel better sooner. Yeah. Like, do you really, do you want to wait three weeks? Do you want to wait till the first of the month? Do you want to wait till a Monday on the first of the month? Really? Do you want to wait till summer solstice, winter solstice, first, your birthday after the vacation? Uh, There isn't a perfect time unless you want to feel better. Yeah. And if you want to feel better, then then you start now. Now, I, I, I know that sounds trite and sounds easier said than done. But it's all easier said than done. The reality is you will feel better when you quit drinking. I think well, that's and I love that you at the beginning of this were like, yeah, February 17th, that's a really random, random day yeah. to stop drinking. And what had happened was, I mean, I told myself, like I did a million times, that in the new year I would stop drinking, right? I was like 40 pounds overweight. It was, I was unhappy. I needed to make a change in my life. I did the New Year's resolution. And guess what? It didn't work. And at most I cut down to a bottle plus of wine, you know, every four nights. So twice a week. And that was brutally hard. And then I went on a business trip and drank too much and thought I'd get this great night's sleep in this hotel bed without my, you know, 22 month old and woke up brutally hungover and at three in the morning and had a hangover and 10 hours of meetings that were really important. And then I saw a woman the next night who was a cautionary tale and falling asleep at the table and couldn't get home to her room. And I thought it was actually really dangerous with all the businessmen around her, like looking at her. Um, and so I took her home and then guess what? I went to my hotel room and opened the bottle of wine that was in the mini bar. And then I came home and spent a night drinking just on my couch, watching scandal and woke up at 3am and realized the next day that I couldn't remember the show I watched to the point where my husband was like, you watched this last night. And I was convinced that he was incorrect and fucking with me. And I couldn't (laughs) tell, but I was trying to play it off. And, you know, just really thought he was wrong. And I was like, you're wrong, but I couldn't, you know, and then I got to the end of the episode and something was familiar. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, that's why I quit on February 17th with my last day drinking. And it was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. It was not 
you know, and my son had a freaking choir concert that night. So on my day one, I walked into the gym in an elementary school and watched all these kids singing and felt miserable and was looking at all the other parents wondering if they knew. I mean, it was random, but that was the last night I drank. Yeah. And you'll remember it. And that was your turning point. And everybody gets to pick their bottom. That was your bottom. Yeah. You could have waited for a lower bottom. You could. It was a death of a thousand cuts though. Like, and I didn't know, like you say, I didn't know that was going to be my last day one. I really didn't. It was no different than the hundreds of times before that I had said, this is it. But the difference is I got support. The difference is I signed up for your 100 day challenge and I emailed you and I emailed you every single day or five days a week for like two years, man. Like, you know, but especially day one, day two, day four, day seven, day 16, when I desperately wanted to drink and was in tears. Yeah. And now here you are. And now here I am. On the other side of the microphone. I know. I love it. And (laughs) similar to you, like not drinking and coaching people and emailing people and doing a podcast, like that is my sober support. Like I don't get too far away from remembering that not drinking is a good idea. It's not my whole life. And it wasn't my whole life for a while. Like I got to, you know, everybody goes through a phase where they're like, I don't want to think about not drinking anymore. I just want to live my life. And that's positive. But you can't convince yourself that you can go back to drinking and you'll end up in the same place. Right. Well, this has been super lovely. It's been really great to to catch up with you too and to chat and to hear all about how you're doing. And we should really do this more often, like more than, you know. I am so grateful to you. Honestly, I can't tell you enough. And your book, for anyone listening, tired of thinking about drinking, Belle's book is on Amazon. I highly recommend it. I also highly recommend her audio recording of the book, which I know we you can't get on Amazon. It's on your website, right? Right, right. But if you go to the website, which is tiredofthinkingaboutdrinking.com, um, that puts you on the free, right on that page, there's a place to sign up for the free daily emails. And then you get access to everything. Once you're on the daily emails, I try not to overwhelm people, but then I talk about one minute messages. And then I talk about the audio for the book and yeah, then there's free stuff and then there's paid stuff. And so it's all, once you're on the daily email list, you get access to all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Belle, you are amazing. You helped me so much. Um, I am so grateful for you and anyone listening, go to Belle's website. I'll link to it in the show notes. It is 100% worth it. You're very sweet. And I want, but I want you to know that you did the work. I was a cheerleader. I threw glitter. I provided hope. I think those are important components, but you're the one who does the work. There's lots of people who, if given cheerleading and hope, uh, aren't ready to do the work. And you were. And so I think that that you can't discount for a second what your role in this is. Thank you. And it was good work. Yeah. Well, it, it's worthwhile, right? Like it yeah. like to to not evolve. I mean, I suppose it's a choice. It just it's not it's not the way I want to go through life. I don't want to go yeah. through life not evolving. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're the cool. best. Thank you. I missed you. Welcome. Welcome. We can chat again soon. I would love that. I would we absolutely should. love that. All right. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.